Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey there, and welcome to a Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just when you thought there's, you couldn't even be more repelled or ashamed by uh, having the president we have, uh, he just, he's a gift that just keeps on giving. Man, he's hes amazing. His performance over in um, France was uh, just extraordinary. I, I just... I, I needn't, I s- suspect, go into it, but how Republicans, this supposedly, you know, uh, I, never mind, I, he went over there supposedly to pay his respect, essentially, to those who had died in a hundred years ago to save democracy, although that's right, World War One, what a disaster. But he couldn't even go to the <laughs> the cemetery. He couldn't even walk with other world leaders to the Arc de Triomphe. He, uh, he, it was like here. Here's Trump in Paris. I, I just petulant, petty. All right. Charles Blow, opinion writer for the New York Times, did a a piece today. Uh, and I want to share some of with you in that he sort of gave us all a shout out. <laughs> the headline is, You Have a Right to Weariness. Um, he, like all of us, is struggling. And the questions that he's struggling with are, does the fact that we are in this extraordinarily consequential time in history, does it mean that we have to stand vigilant, perpetually vigilant? He calls it obsessive vigilance. Or is it permissible to take a break every once in a while for one's own mental and spiritual health. I mean, this is a question certainly that I've raised many times, and I've answered it a few by saying, see you later. <laughs> I've got to get out of here for a while. I've got to tune out because uh, I can't do this nonstop. And I, he's pretty much uh, arrived at the same conclusion He said, I feel trapped. He said, said, all he's done for the last two years is write about Donald Trump, a man who he 
despises and he cannot stop even though there are so many other things he wants to write about but every time he thinks I have to turn away I have to write about this happening over here this is important in any other time in our history we'd be spending tons of time talking about this and then he's pulled back he says I feel compelled by what I view as history fundamental and consequential playing out right before our eyes with nothing short of the life of this nation at stake and yet at a certain point words begin to fail me oh yeah I'm feeling you Charles I am feeling it words fail because the obvious has already been stated it's all been said we keep saying the same things once you have pointed out that Trump is a liar you can then what note every day that he is still lying <clears throat> and the same goes for his racism his bullying his anti-intellectualism, his corruption, his grift. And he says, Blow says, that I know nobody wants to hear this, but we are, and this isn't ending anytime soon, he says, there's little anyone can do now to change the fact that we are stuck right now with this man. He points out that the fact that the Republicans control the Senate means that impeachment is off the table. I mean, the, the House can certainly... Um, certainly do their thing and impeach, but the Senate is the court and it will not convict so we can't get rid of him through impeachment so that's why we always turn with our hopes on Robert Mueller and you can see how much the Republicans are acting the White House acting to hamper shut down that but Lowe says, you know, let's be honest, it's very likely that we are stuck with Trump certainly until the 2020 election. That's two more years. And even then, who knows, the Democrats, I don't know, they, can they defeat him? Anyway, he ends with this, and I think it's, it's the right thing. He first of all wonders what I wonder all the time, the thing that I say that is so upsetting. It's not Trump 
it's all of the people in this country who support him, who are not repulsed by him, who stand with him no matter what awful thing he does or says. And it is that that scares the hell out of me. It's we, the people, not just the one man. Because even if we get rid of Trump, <coughs> the, our fellow Americans <coughs> are still here, and we now see them. How could we not have registered the full depths of American racism and American misogyny? And now we know. And Charles Blow is a black man and he turned to his mother. And she's elderly black woman has lived her whole life in the South. And she is more calm than he. And he decided that he needed to look at how black people who endured Jim Crow, who endured so many other times, how they made it through and he said this when he started to talk to older black people. The recurring themes that kept coming up were to never lose hope. Never lose hope that ultimately righteousness will be victorious. To focus on the things you are most able to change and to realize that change is not quick and change is not permanent. In other words, you can never let down. In for the long haul. And he ends with this, which I will read to you. The struggle for goodness and decency is an eternal struggle, not a seasonal one. Don't beat yourself up if you need to tune out every now and then and take a mental health break. There is no shame in it. This is a forever fight. Once you have recharged, Reapply your armor and rejoin the fight with even more vigor. I think that's what I've figured too. I'm, you know, some days I'm better than others. <laughs> uh, yeah. There is, this is the last thing I read before I left the house, and I, I thought, what, what, what? 
it it's in the Wall Street Journal, which on the uh, op-ed page, which I usually avoid. That's why it's the last thing I read. I usually just peek with one eye. And then I saw this headline. Hillary will run again. And I thought, oh dear. Is that this is the Wall Street Journal essentially trolling people like me, right? Well, yeah, right, but the authors of this piece are two Democrats. In fact, the authors of the piece are a senior advisor to the Clintons. That would be Mark Penn. And the other is the uh, Manhattan Borough President, also president of the New York City Council. His name is Andrew Stein. And they wrote this piece telling us, I'm just letting you know in case they're not insane and they're, they know something I don't know, they say she's going to run. And they say she's going to get the nomination. And I say, hooey! That's what I say. Hooey! I think this piece is just here to ruin people, people like me's, uh, you know, breakfast. That's I think that's what it's here for. Why the... Wall Street Journal happily said to Mark Penn and Andrew Stein, hey, yeah, man, sure, we'll publish that in a minute. You got to admit, Mark Penn knows her well. And here's what he says. She will not allow the humiliating loss to Trump a loss at the hands of an amateur to end the story of her career. You can expect her to run for president. Maybe not at first when the legions of Senate Democrats make their announcements, but definitely she'll come in by the time the primaries are in full swing. And then they point out she has a 75% approval rating among Democrats. Yeah, I give her an approval rating. Good woman, done good work, totally fucked up the last election. But um, if somebody were asked me, would I approve of her being the standard bearer of the Democratic Party to take on Trump again? Are you kidding? He says she's got they, 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 they're gonna she's gonna roll out the new Hillary and she's gonna be a hot firebrand type, sort of like Hillary Rodham Clinton when she first came on the political stage, remember, and then had to dial it back um, because it was too out there. He says she's gonna be that again. And he goes on to say that all the Democrats who've been waiting to take over the party from the Clintons will be fuming that she is back and stealing their show. 
but they revealed themselves to be bungling amateurs in the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. Yeah, yeah, Mark Penn, and what did you reveal yourself to be during the the, the Clinton? I mean, what? Just because Democrats, other than Hillary Clinton, don't know how to win, it doesn't mean she's the one that we should be supporting. He says all these wannabes, she's going to trounce them. Just as Trump cleared the field, Mrs. Clinton will take down rising Democratic stars like bowling balls. What's happened since last we talked? Oh, my God. Well, Paris and, and, and all that. And then uh, the fires. Jeez. The recounts. Uh, I mean, isn't it amazing, really? I mean, every time I, I leave here, I say, you know, we'll talk about whatever. It's just, it's, it's, it's endless. It's just endless and overwhelming. We are seeing a little, I think, peek at what, Republicans will do if uh, in 2020 if they lose more including the presidency they'll say Democrats stole the election I think the most dangerous thing about what Republicans are doing now is this again long game long game which they've been playing since Reagan to make Americans mistrust the institutions of their government. But never have we seen it as it is playing now. Well, remember we were talking, I think, well, Susan joined us on Friday, and uh, we were talking about how if you look at election results now, you know, it's urban-rural, but really what it is is education. And again, the Wall Street Journal today did a piece about how it's, it's increasingly, re it, it is education which is at the core of where people end up in terms of their political uh, support. The more educated you are, the more likely you are to vote Democrat. The less educated you are, the more likely you are to vote Republican. And we see it, of course, playing out in what used to be strong Republican uh, districts in the suburbs, now going to the Democrats because those suburban voters tend to be highly educated, and you also see it going the other way. They point out a uh, northern uh, Minnesota, Minnesota district that has been solidly Democrat uh, 
forever. These were, uh, they were in the uh, mining industry, copper mining up there. It's blue collar uh, Democrats. And while Democrats were flipping Republican suburban districts, that Minnesota district, reliably blue forever, flipped Republican. And all you have to do is look at, again, you can literally look at educational level. Democrats now represent 27 of the 30 House districts with the largest concentration of college-educated Americans. Before Tuesday, they held 20. So they've picked up all except three. And just to put it in perspective, when Bill Clinton was elected, and you look at those same districts, they were evenly divided, those 30 districts between Republicans and Democrats, and Republicans hold only three now. So America is divided in a new way. The new cultural divide is flat-out education. I don't know how the Democrats get back those blue-collar workers. They've thrown in with the white, they've, th and again, we should mention, I think I did this on Friday, you have to, when we're talking about those blue collar voters, we're, the word we're not saying is white. White blue collar voters, because this piece too cautions that the educational divide is a new feature of our politics and is a force only among the white electorate rather than among minority groups. So minority groups are holding where they were. It's white people with not a lot of education that are running to embrace Donald Trump. Do you remember he actually said on the campaign trail, didn't he once, I love uneducated people. Do you remember he flat out said that or something? <laughs> so who do the Democrats run? I wanna I came upon a interesting piece. I'm just going to throw it out here so in case this guy ends up going anywhere, you will be able to say, I remember when Lynn Cullen told us that, mentioned his name. Remember when that was? It was like years ago. I remember. She said, you ever hear of John Delaney? Uh, John Delaney has been a member of the Congress. Uh, for a little while, not that long, I think a few terms. He's from uh, Maryland. And did you know that he has announced his campaign for the presidency? 
and he announced it a year ago. <laughs> so he announced three years before the election that he was a candidate for president of the United States. And to be very clear, he left his seat in the Congress so that he could devote his time and energy <laughs> to running for president of the United States. Do you think he's nuts? He doesn't sound nuts. John Delaney, just giving you the name, he's 55 years old. He said, I think, I mean, he said, I'm doing it because I think I'm the right person, but not enough people know who I am. So I figure the way to solve that problem is to get in early and just work harder than everyone else. John Delaney has already visited every county in Iowa. There are 99. He has, and when you go to 99 counties in Iowa, most of those counties have about six people in them, right? I mean, those are sparsely populated rural areas. And this guy, for the last year, has been showing up there. there his... If you were to say in Iowa, stop people on the street in Iowa and say, who's John Delaney? The odds are that you will get an answer. Oh, he's the guy running for president. I'm not kidding. His name recognition in Iowa, I had it here somewhere. It's, it's off the charts. <coughs> there isn't a... a a diner he hasn't been in. He's gone and spoken to groups of uh, eight people, 20 people at a little rural, you know, Kiwanis club. He turns down nothing. He said he's trying to do what Jimmy Carter did. And I, I have told the story of uh, how I first met Jimmy Carter, and it's when he was doing exactly what John Delaney is doing. I was the weekend anchor and reporter for a TV station in Madison, Wisconsin, in like, when, what would that have been, 1975 or 76? 75, probably. And, you know, not a lot of news on the weekend. So we were always scrambling. And there was a press release that said that this former governor of Georgia was going to have a press conference at the Sheraton Hotel um, about his, uh, his running for the presidency. <laughs> and I remember joking about it with somebody. I said, but geez, I said, we got nothing, so let's go. I showed up at that room at the Sheraton, and do you know, I was the only reporter there. It was a little room. There was Jimmy Carter, and there was me. And that reminded me of John Delaney and the fact that John Delaney, I didn't know who the hell he was. And I did leave that one-on-one -on -one interview with this guy so impressed I mean my god I thought Jesus this guy is 
brilliant. And I, his blue eyes, God, he had the most astonishing blue eyes. But I was blown away by him. And I gave him, like, tons of time on my TV show that night on the news. So this guy's trying to do a Jimmy Carter, work for Jimmy Carter. Oh, here it is. So they did a, a, a Emerson College is in uh, Iowa. They did a poll in September. And get this, 80% of Iowans knew who John Delaney was. 80, eight, zero, knew who he was. Jeez. So, before you think this guy's a, I mean, he sounds like a very sort of, just saying, who knows? The, the odds are that whoever our nominee will be is not somebody that we're necessarily focused on right now. Just like we weren't focused on this guy who just got elected to the state senate in Illinois. Well, no, then to the Senate of the United States from Illinois, who we'd never heard of before, Barack Obama. So this guy is rich as hell. It's why he can quit the Congress and spend all this time in Iowa, and that's sort of the new uh, normal in American politics. He um, he was the youngest chief executive on the New York Stock Exchange. His companies have made him uh, worth a lot of money. But he started out with totally working class, so he's self-made. Neither of his parents went to college. His father was an electrician who belonged to a union and that union covered half of Delaney's college expenses. And he always tells the crowds in Iowa, I would have nothing that I have today but for a bunch of electricians reaching into their pockets to help fund my college. So here's a guy just doing, trying to meet everybody he can. He's held dozens and dozens of events, sometimes, as I said, with not even double digits people showing up. He's gone to cities with just a few hundred people in them, towns with just a few hundred people. He's shown up what does he stand for? He calls himself a pragmatic idealist. He says he wants to figure out how to counter the negative effects of globalization, um, which he acknowledges, but also acknowledges that globalization ain't going away, so let's, let's cushion the negative aspects of it, which are hitting 
blue-collar workers the most. And he talks about tax incentives, better public education, universal health care. I don't know. Just want you to know. James Delaney. John. <laughs> he still ain't. I mean, I'm just. John Delaney. There you go. Could be. Never know. Oh, good God. Is that the time? Wait a minute. Oh, no, it isn't. I'm going blind. I can't. Okay, can we do a quick obit? This is one of those retro obits in the New York Times I've, I've told you about. They are occasionally running an obituary that didn't run when it should have. This woman died in 2001, and it didn't run because women's lives simply were ignored. Right up until relatively <laughs> recently. And so they've been going back and looking at women who deserved a New York Times obituary and remedying that. Um, this is a woman named Rose Zar, Z-A-R. It's a shortened from a very long Polish name that starts with Z-A-R. <laughs> but when she and her husband got finally to the United States, moved to South Bend, Indiana, they changed the name to Zar. But she was born in a little Polish town in 1922. And things started going bad for her and her family because they were Jews in, um, when she was in her teens. And her father, who was a leather worker, always told her that if she should ever have to run, not to worry, she was young, and if she could take off, go ahead. And he said to her, if you ever do go into hiding, the best place to hide is the most obvious, where those who are pursuing you would never look, hiding in plain sight. And what he told her was that you have to hide in the mouth of the wolf. But of course, watch that they don't devour you. And that's what this teenage girl did. When she was 19, she grabbed a suitcase. She had acquired a forged passport, which made her to be Wanda somebody or other, not a Jew, and she just took off. She worked in SS headquarters in Krakow, Poland, in the mouth 
of the beast. She started lowly, peeling potatoes, cleaning. She laughed at the crude anti-Semitic jokes being made by the other workers around her. She said, I told myself, you were born in the wrong time. You are an actress now. You have to play your role because you pay a price if you don't. The price is your life. Eventually, she was summoned to to the uh, office of the SS uh, Commandant uh, in the building. She figured that was it. She'd been found out. That wasn't it. He began asking her a lot of questions, how her German was so fluent. And uh, generally, uh, he seemed impressed by Fraulein Wanda. And so... He told her she would be working with his wife. And once she had that, she went from the kitchen up to the commandant's private area. She was living in luxury, right there in the mouth of the wolf. Every day, She would make sure she had a little case that was packed with a little bit of money in it, with some passports. She always had an escape route planned. And she, she survived living in the mouth of the beast. And it turns out her brother survived doing the same thing, although they never crossed paths. He, too, hiding in the mouth of the beast. Her high school boyfriend survived and became her husband. And then... They were refugees. They'd lost their homes. They were Jewish refugees. And they had returned. (coughs) They had stayed in Poland. (coughs) And here's something that is, I think, not generally known. But imagine being a Jew who has somehow survived the horror. And you go back to your home and you are killed. Because you're a Jew. (laughs) Yeah, I can't believe I'm laughing. But there were violent pogroms that broke out in Poland after the war against Jewish refugees. And she and her husband ran for their lives. And they took with them, they managed to smuggle out, although this is not clear in this obit, 130 Jewish refugee children, orphans. And with these kids, they made their way through Czechoslovakia and into southern Germany where they went to a U.S. Army 
base and there they were taken in and they were allowed to set up a school for these children and given help by the International Refugee Organization. So she became like the mother to these orphaned, over a hundred orphaned children, helping them to get their feet back under them, helping them to gain confidence. She taught them about uh, their Jewish heritage. The International Refugee Organization said that she was astonishing in her sacrifice for these kids. These are the children that ended up on a boat heading to Palestine. The boat was named Exodus. And of course, what happened to that boat has become famous in film and because the British refused to let it dock. The British turned that boat with all of those children and with almost 5,000 survivors of the Holocaust. They finally are within reach of the Jewish homeland, a place of safety and they're turned back by the Brits. End up in a holding pen in Cyprus. She was not on the boat. <coughs> she then went to the United States with her husband, settled in South Bend. She ended up writing a book about her life. Um, as I said, she died at the uh, age of 70, 79 in South Bend. Rose Czar hiding in the mouth of the wolf. Um, <coughs> oh dear. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. Have you heard about this book, uh, Night at Camp David? <coughs> no, Night of Camp David. It was uh, written in 1965. It's getting attention again because it is frighteningly a political thriller that looks like exactly what's going on in the country today. It's creepy. And people who have found it, <coughs> it, it is, um, it's a book, and in the book, it's congressional leaders are trying to figure out what they should do if the president is mentally unfit and unstable and it 
the novel is about an unhinged American president who um, is surrounded by people desperately trying to keep him from going totally off the rails. Um, and all of a sudden, it reads so much like what the reports of, you know, Bob Woodward's reporting of, uh, you know, inside the White House and, and all the other. It reads just like this friggin' novel. <coughs> Night of Camp David. The tagline on the original novel says, What would happen if the President of the United States went stark raving mad? Ah, <laughs> uh, guess who just reread it? Bob Woodward. He reread it. Used copies of it on Amazon are going for over a hundred bucks. A publisher is re-releasing it. Um, one of the people who reviewed it on Amazon said, "Just change its name to A Night at Mar-a-Lago. It's the same plot, only the characters are different." Um, in the novel. This deranged president tries to undo all of America's alliances with long-standing, uh, you know, uh, friends in uh, Western Europe. Uh, he arranges high-level clandestine meetings with the Soviet uh, premier that uh, are clearly against the national security of the United States. And listen to this. This is the part that just blows me away. There is also a Supreme Court justice in this novel written in 1965 whose name is Kavanaugh. Cue the Twilight Zone music. Oh... Okay, what else do I got here? I got so much stuff. I got stuff. I got scraps. Where are you guys today? You're not even writing me. Um, or am I not connected somehow? I don't know. I don't know. There, uh, again, a piece pointing out how fascism is always fueled by an authoritarian government allying itself with the corporate, monopolistic corporations. So it's one of the ways you end up in in a fascist state. Obviously, there's other factors playing in, but uh, extreme economic concentration, which is to say monopoly, creates conditions that are ripe for dictatorship. And this is, um, this is from a, a book that's been written by a law professor at Columbia. Um, 
It's called the curse of bigness. Antitrust in the new gilded age. And uh, it's, uh, it's concerning. Theodore Roosevelt, if he could be resurrected, would be stunned at how we've allowed the monopolies to, again, control so much of our economy. It was so clear that that was part of how the Third Reich became so powerful that after we won the war, the Allies broke up. One of the first things they did was go in and broke up the German monopolies. And specifically, it was said, so they could not be used by Germany as instruments of political or economic aggression. And what this guy says we have now done is set the stage for this very kind of situation happening um, in the United States. He says we totally and recklessly have chosen to tolerate global monopolies. Think about it in finance, in media, in the airlines, in the telecommunications uh, industry, uh, to say nothing of the growing size and power of the major technology giants getting bigger by the minute, and uh, the platforms that carry everything these days. So he says we have absolutely, this country is absolutely, and this is, this is right out of the Republican playbook, uh, cast aside the safeguards that were supposed to protect democracy from this dangerous marriage of private, corporate, and public political power. He says, just think about it, just uh, think about it. In, rec in recent years, we have, <coughs> we have allowed unhealthy consolidations of hospitals. <laughs> just look over your shoulder here. And the pharmaceutical industry. We have accepted extraordinarily concentrated banking uh, interests. And despite the fact that they almost took the whole world into a, a, a depression just 10 years ago, right? Remember, we, we, we were got tough on them, yeah, a little bit, until the Republicans came in and dismantled absolutely everything. Can't deregulate those banks fast enough. Facebook has bought up all of its competitors, most effective competitors. We have allowed AT&T to reconsolidate after we wisely broke them up in the 1980s. We don't break anything up anymore. We just keep letting them grow. 
there is a direct link between concentration and the distortion of the democratic process. This guy points out that, look, okay, the middle class. It's huge, right? Or used to be. The middle class is, uh, you know, has its issues, but it has no organization. It has no lobbyists in D.C. It is hopelessly disorganized and consequently has pretty much no influence in Congress. Okay, think about that. But who does have influence in Congress? These companies. He specifically, for example, points out just look what's happened in, regarding, in regard to drug prices. He says, imagine there is actually a law in this country that prohibits the government, Medicare, from negotiating <laughs> for lower drug prices with the farm. Imagine that. There is a law. Who would want that law? You? A law that prevents drug prices from being lowered? Because, my God, the government has huge power with Medicare to say to the pharmaceutical, hey, hey, guys, uh -uh, drop those prices. We're your biggest customer, baby. Drop the prices. The pharmaceutical industry spent more than $100 million lobbying for that law. And boy, has that been $100 million well spent. They spent $100 million to get a law that said they got to charge whatever they damn well pleased. And as a consequence, that $100 million yielded $15 billion a year to the pharmaceutical companies in higher payments for its products, which we know are obscenely high. Antitrust legislation was pretty much something that came out of the United States, came out of the Gilded Age, came out of a Republican president, Theodore Roosevelt, who broke up uh, the, the monopolies of the Rockefellers and of, and of uh, J.P. Morgan. I'm just saying, yow. few more years with these Republicans doing the bidding of all these corporations and there ain't going to be much left. They'll be goose-stepping down Pennsylvania Avenue. Paul says, fret not, Lynn. We're here listening we're busy creating a GoFundMe page to help buy an umbrella for Trump. 
Um, <clears throat> I have to say that after I left here on Friday, I went uh, in that rain. <laughs> I walked over to the Wyndham and met Sally Wigan, who had just gotten off a plane from the Falkland Islands, and then we went over. I was not intending to go, and very few people did, and completely understand. I mean, it was just, we were soaked. Um... And the, the ground at Point State Park was, it was just mud. And I mean, it was sinking. My feet were soaking wet through my shoes, through my socks. I am so glad I went. It was a remarkable event. And it's so sad that so few people were there. I mean, they hadn't advertised that, you know, Tom Hanks was going to be there. They hadn't advertised that Michael Keaton was essentially the MC, And I think that's right. They didn't want people showing up just to stargaze. But it felt like a very intimate, wet little gathering. The paper said there were 400 people there. I don't think there were 400 people there. And half the people were people who were taking part um, on stage. Roberto Clemente Jr. gave a just beautiful speech. Steeler Brett Kiesel was like fired up. He gave a wondrous, clearly anti-Trump harangue that never mentioned Trump's name, but it was pretty damn clear. The governor was there. Senator Casey was there. Nobody spoke for long, but the three rabbis were there, the three congregations, and they they sang a Jewish prayer for healing, Mishaberach. The Alderdice Choir or something, Taylor Alderdice Choir, uh, along with Tom Hanks and Joanne Rogers um, and us sang... It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, which was sort of ironic, seeing as we were standing there like drowned rats. It's funny, I didn't even recognize him. I mean, I, I was standing just two, right pretty much at the front of the stage. And when Joanne walked out, Sally and I both said, Joanne! We, Sally had been texting her earlier in the morning. Actually, there's a group of us, Sally and me and my friend Kit and Jean Marie Laskus, the girls, and uh, we have a group text. So the fact that Sally had returned and we were all greeting her, saying hi, and that's when I said to Sally, you know, there's this thing you could go to because she'd been feeling so bereft and so alone. And... And then there's Joanne walking out on the stage, and um, we both screamed, Joanne, there was a guy holding an umbrella over her head. And then the guy leaned into the microphone and said something, and that's when I recognized <laughs> it was Tom Hanks. Wow, that's Tom Hanks. And Joanne I uh, later told us that, that he flew in. He was gone. He wasn't here anymore. 
he flew back especially for that little thing, to walk on the stage and sing that song with Joanne. And she was in New York doing some other thing that had to do with the, um, well, here's what it is, because she sent this to me, and I want to share it with you. Uh, Here it is. Won't You Be My Neighbor? That's the documentary about Mr. Rogers. Won the Critics' Choice Documentary Award Saturday night in New York City. That's where, yeah, no. Oh, she wasn't there then. That was after. She's in D.C. now with something else. This is a 90-year-old woman. She's jet-setting all over the place, hanging with hanging with movie stars. I think she's having the time of her life, and um, I love it. Also, that documentary not only won Best Documentary, which means it beat out RBG, which I think a lot of people thought would win, the, the one about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That one won uh, Best Political Documentary or something. Um, but Mr. Rogers... Won't You Be My Neighbor won overall, also won uh, Best Director and Best Editing. So Joanne's getting the, Joanne's said in her little text, off to the Oscars. I don't know, has that been reported? Because I haven't seen anything about it. Um, so anyway, that's really neat. Um... Okay, I guess. Oh, my God. Out of time. Jeez. Enough. Okay. Um, see you guys tomorrow. We'll see if Susan wants to join us again so soon, but uh, try to get back on track. And um, have a good one. Okay? Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.